Great to be with you this morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles with you, please open them to Galatians chapter 5. Uh, we're actually going to be uh, in chapter 5 and uh, beginning in the last verse in verse 26 and then moving through till chapter 6 verse 5. Uh, I'm going to read the verses this morning for us before we dive in. I'm going to pray after that and then we'll dive into our message for today. So read along with me if you would. Last verse of chapter 5 verse 26. And then through to uh, verse 5 in chapter 6. Apostle Paul wrote, Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch over yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his or her own load. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you once again for this awesome pleasure it is uh, that we get to come here on Sunday morning. Uh, Father, we are uh, so appreciative of the fact that uh, you have called us. Uh, by the power of your word, you have called us to be here, to be your children, to be um, part of your family. And Father, we consider that uh, such a blessing and an encouraging thing in, to, in our lives today and in this world today that we get to be called children of God. So Father, I just pray today as we gather here that, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak through me, through the words you've given, through this text through the Apostle Paul, to us today, so that we may be people who bear much fruit, people who love one another, truly love one another, and are seen that way in this community as loving people. So, Father, I just pray that you would bless this time now. In Jesus' worthy name I pray. Amen. Uh, so, um, as many of you probably know, <clears throat> this past Sunday, my mom passed away over on Salt Spring Island. <laughs> Um, 87 years, so it was good. <laughs> it was very good. Um, my sister has been her caregiver um, primarily for the last two and a half years. She's been in an assisted living place, and she's had a great life. It's amazing. Married to my very handsome father. I take after my mother, obviously. And uh, she was pretty. Okay. And uh, yeah, Tom passed away. My dad passed away 13 years ago, so mom... It's just had an amazing life, a really amazing life. And I just want to thank all of you for your texts, your emails, your prayers. Uh, it's very encouraging. It's really, really encouraging at times like this. I had an interesting thought as we rushed to the ferry on Sunday night <clears throat> to be there with my sister and Mike um, and be together there. Uh, and it was thoughts about my mom, which of course brought tears. But one thought that I want to share with you today uh, relates not just to our text today, but I think to who we are as human beings. Uh, and, and that's what our text is actually trying to talk about, is about relationships and who we are as people. Uh, that thought it was this. My mother, if any of you have met her, is an incredibly unique individual. <laughs> uh, her name was Eunice Florence Davies. She pronounced it Eunice in the last 10 years, and if you mistook the pronunciation, 
Well, you're in trouble, basically. She was so unique, really, really unique. If you knew her, and, and I look back, and I was telling Janice, looking back when she was very young, she was such an industrious woman. My dad was a construction worker, you know, provided for the family, but mom's out there working for the tea, tea eating companies and started in accounting and, and then in merchandising and sales, and she just was a go-getter. She was incredible, an amazing woman. Personality, puts on parties in our home. Um, you know, I, I think it's fair to say this. There was absolutely no one, past, present, or future, like Eunice. The way she lived her life, her laugh, her personality is just utterly different. I think it's true in relation to my mother that uh, you could say this, that uh, they threw out the mold (laughs) when Eunice was born. And I think some of you are probably thinking, well, wait a second. (laughs) That's great, Glenn. Your mom was probably very unique. We agree with you, but... My mom was too. My dad is mom. Friends. People are so unique. And the thought I had was, how is that? Really? How is that? It is true, isn't it? I mean, every human being is so individually unique. And when you take into consideration the billions of men and women who have lived throughout history, no matter how long you think that history is, the truth is, is that really, I don't think there's ever been two identical human beings. Do you? I don't think there is. And we don't have time today, but if you delve into the Googleverse, which I do all the time, and I'm sure many of you do, what you're going to find is really interesting. In our culture and world today, our postmodern, modern culture that really has, uh, you know, this, that's part of the creed and, that they have today in our world today, many people do, and that is that science alone can answer questions like this. And so it's interesting. I did a bunch of searching, and you, you're actually going to find a lot of articles about this. And the, you know, like especially with the new, the the, the breaking down of the, the genome, right? The DNA and the science is trying to figure out everything about us. And apparently, people think that science can actually answer these questions. Well, it's actually quite interesting when you do the research. That at the end of the day, after all the articles you read, there seems to be a thread, and most of the people are pretty honest about it. They can't explain this. They actually can't explain the uniqueness of individuals from the DNA, from the genome, from science. But they keep trying, right? The, the part that's, that's kind of sad at one point really is, I, I noticed a lot of articles will give a little assent or a little nod to the fact that the Bible says that we're all created in the image of God, but then they'll just go on to dis- dismiss it and just go back to the science and try to prove by science. I find that funny, but also quite sad. And the truth is, is that your uniqueness, my uniqueness, is based on that truth. That before the foundation of the world, before you were uh, even a dream in your mother's womb, God knew you personally and individually. And that brings us really to our text today. Paul's going to switch gears here in chapter 5, verse 26, as you heard me read, in a very startling way. But the point is, he's going from the gospel teaching that he's been doing in the book of Galatians to, okay, how does this work out? How should this work out in human relationships? So it becomes very practical as we finish this book today. Um, The message titled for today is Right Relationships, and I hope to see three things with you today. Number one, that you and I are made for relationship. And number two, relationships are generally in trouble in our world today generally. And we're going to see why. And number three, relationships can be redeemed, fully can be redeemed in this world, in this life today. So number one, made for relationship. Listen, as we learned last week, 
the problem of false teachers arriving in Galatia was the main issue that Paul started off with in chapter 1, right? There were these false teachers coming down, and they were, they, were, they were saying that Paul's gospel, the gospel of faith alone and Jesus alone for your salvation, without works, without you needing to do anything, was insufficient. And they were preaching another gospel to the people there. Well, that was the key issue, the main issue, but there was other things going on. And the main thing that was going on is that the people at that time, the church is now seven, eight, nine, ten years old, the churches, the four in Galatia that were planted, and the Christian life was not what people had expected it to be. It was actually harder than they thought it was going to be. And there was a little bit of a malaise, and, and quite frankly, the people at that point in time were now more open, and I'm going to use the word gullible, to the teachings of these men. So what I want to suggest to you today is this. This one verse... Verse 26 in particular, and the few that follow reveal the crux of the problem in Galatia, as they do today. And these words would have landed very heavily in the laps of the men and women in Galatia. Just imagine, these come back, you know, conceited, provoking, envying, it, it, you know, biting one another. He says it back in verse 15 of chapter 5. And they're getting this read to them, right, by their local pastors, and it's being read to them. And this is from Paul about you guys. It would have landed very heavily, I think, in their laps at that point in time. And uh, so let, let's look at it this way. When, 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 they, when Paul's saying this in this first verse, in that first verse, it's not like Paul is saying, listen, I'm concerned about you ending up this way. It's not, you know, like you're going to maybe become conceited, provoking and envying each other in the future. The fact of the matter is, this is what has happened to you because you've gotten away from the gospel. And so the fruit that was being produced among them, the love, the joy, the peace, and all the other facets of the fruit that was being produced among them, is now being snuffed out by jealousy, by conceit, provoking one another, envying one another, biting one another, divisions going on in the church. In the Christian life and in the church, these are like a hailstorm in a vineyard, which we looked at last week, right? John 15. And the vine and the branches in a vineyard. But it's like a hailstorm coming in to a vineyard, uh, smashing the very life out of the fruit and the branches. The root of the problem, the root of the problem, a lack of love, which breaks relationships. And so we need to do some work here, some background work. I want to just look a little bit with you at Genesis. Some of you who've been with us seven or eight years at the Rock Church are like, Glenn, is that the only chapter of the Bible that you really know? Because we keep going back there. But the truth is, is that so many foundational things are there. And I just want to highlight a couple of things for us today related to relationships so that we, we, we have a better picture of what Paul's getting at here in these verses. You all know the first four words, in the beginning, God, right? That Hebrew word God is the word Elohim, which is plural. So, so right from the very beginning, it's just a fact statement. It's not a science statement. It's a fact statement. There's a God. <laughs> the whole story, the whole book is about him and what he's doing. But he's plural. He, he, he gives that to us right in the very beginning in the language of the Scripture. As we move through the first chapter, you see that every day of creation ends with these words. And God saw that it was good. Well, yeah, God's perfect. What he creates is perfect and good, but every day the scripture reminds us that God saw that it was good. And then on the sixth day, when God created Adam and Eve, man and woman, he said that it was very good. In verse 31, it says, and God saw everything that he had made. He looked at everything that he had made up until that point in time, and he said, it was very, very good. 
Well, typical in Hebrew literature, the second chapter unpacks the last few verses of chapter 1 and tells the actual story of the creation by God of man and woman. And so we know in that story that, that Adam was made first. There's a lot of important things about that and some that are not that important, but he was created first. And I think one of the most important things that is often overlooked in this is that we see that Adam's there. God's created man. He's created him. He's put him into this garden. He starts bringing animals before Adam, and Adam's looking at these animals who are coming before him in pairs, and God's giving Adam the responsibility to name these animals, which is a sign of his dominion and rule that God is going to give to him and to Eve over God's creation. But something really interesting happens in that. At that one point, Adam's looking around, and he can see that there's a problem here. Adam recognizes something. He's alone. He's alone. He's got God. He's got a, a phenomenal and wonderful relationship with God every day, knowing that God exists and that God created him and this beautiful garden and this beautiful place, this creation all around him. But he's alone. And then it's God who actually says this. In chapter 2, verse 18, it says, it is not good that man should be alone. I mean, think of the statement. <laughs> everything has been good. God makes everything perfectly. And now it is God who's saying, this is not a good thing. It's a very important statement. I will make him a helper fit for him. I think the word fit is actually the best word and the most important word in that verse because the word literally means corresponding, which is exactly what Adam was looking for. Who, who corresponds to me? Where, where's my corresponding relationship? Now, I don't know exactly where I, I picked this up in, in the past, but um, being created in the image of God, obviously God being plural, and when God said in the end of chapter 1, let us make man in our image, again we see the picture of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who from eternity past, present, and future are living together in a community, a family of loving friends. In relationship. In relationship. So there was a corresponding thing there. And so what we have in this relationship, here's what I want us to see as we, before we move into the most important part of this text, is that Adam is alone. And, and it actually what, what happens is not only is Eve, the woman, necessary for God's plan in creation, but it isn't until she arrives that Adam actually knows who he is. He, he doesn't know who he is. He, he may have seen his own reflection in a pond or, or in some place, but, and, and, but he, he can't even have someone respond to him. And so the point is this. We learn and see from this background in Genesis, from the story of God in Genesis, that you and I were made for relationship. That's what we were made for. The whole, the whole point from the very beginning, from a triune God that's in relationship, creates us to be in relationship with him, but also gives us corresponding, not only man and woman in marriage, but friends, brothers and sisters, aunts and uncles, grandparents, a family to be in relationship with. Well, you all know what happened, right? Relationships were broken in the most tragic of ways. Firstly, Adam and Eve believed and thought that they could just do fine without a relationship with God. Their relationship with God was broken, which immediately, if you look at chapter 3, verses 16 and on, Adam and Eve's relationship was broken. And it's been that way since that time. However, we know the good news. We know, fast-forwarding to this day, that Jesus has come, right? 
Jesus has come and he has died on the cross and in our place and for our sins. Yes, to give us individual and personal salvation so that we can be restored in our relationship to God for eternity, but also so that our relationships between husband and wife, brother and sister, mother and father, all of those relationships can be healed and be made again what they were supposed to be. And so that's the whole point. That's the point of the gospel is to redeem and restore human relationships. And so Paul is writing into a situation in Galatia. We could look back, well, it's 2,000 years ago. How, come on, relevant is that to here today? I think it's proof, proof that we're not exactly evolving, right? I think what we're going to see today is that the problems that Paul is writing about in that day, that we're breaking the relationships even in the church. And hear me when I say this. This is being written to the church. This is for Christians. This is happening amongst Christians, which is sad. But it's also happening in our world. We know it. So that's point number one. We are made for relationship. I hope you see that. And we're not made to be alone, ever. We're to be in relationship. It's hard, isn't it? Isn't it hard in this world today to actually be in relationship with people? Can't they become a little annoying? <laughs> okay, just that's the only way I see it maybe sometimes. But we come on. The, the, when people, when it becomes difficult, we want to pull away. We want to move away. And Paul's point here is today is, guys, don't let that happen. Don't let that happen. And here's what he says. In verse 26, he says, Let us not, us, I love that, that he says, listen, <laughs> this, I can do this too. I am doing this. I have done this. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. So let's remember what Paul's been going on about earlier in chapter 5. He lamented in verse 7, guys, you were doing so good. (laughs) You were running so well. You know, you you were fruit-bearing. The gospel was being preached. You know, you were loving one another. The fruit was coming out of you in unbelievable ways. And then, of course, we got to verses 16 to 24, and he laid out the key problem that was beginning to infest the church. And there's this constant, he says, battle that you need to to understand. The reason why the Christian life today is as difficult as it is, and you're beginning to realize that, is that you were born with a sinful nature. You were born with a flesh. And so that flesh had unopposed reign and rule in your life until you came to Christ. So you may have thought you were a good person and you were doing your best and that, you know, if God was a good God, he'd just, hey, listen, better than the next person, he might accept me. No, the sinful nature was ruling and reigning in you. And then the Holy Spirit comes into your life. He enters you. He makes you into new creation. But the truth is, the reality is, we've seen in Scripture, those two natures are battling each other. And so we have a role to play in this, we learn from Paul, and that is, that is our responsibility to crucify the flesh, take up our cross daily as we follow Jesus Christ and put that nature to bed, nail it to cross, leave it there and walk in the spirit. And that's beautiful how he says that, walk by the spirit. And I love this. You will not gratify. Remember we saw last week, it's not about walk by the spirit and do not, right? You know, oh, more commands. Great. No, walking by the spirit means we will not gratify the sinful nature. And so he bookends that in verse 25 with, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So we are to live by the Spirit. And if we do, the good news is that we will become fruitful Christians full of love, joy, and peace, and every other facet of fruit will be produced in our lives. The problem? We're still human. (laughs) We're still in, yes, these bodies, but in the flesh. We're still having this battle going on in us. 
And we as children of God are, yes, we're living in a new family with what are supposed to be redeemed and restored relationships, emphasis on supposed to be redeemed and restored relationships. But again, relationships. I was on the ferry coming back from Salt Spring this week, and I, I had a picture I was going to put it up for you, but it, uh, Jennifer Garner, anybody know her? Like the actress, right? You know, like I'm pretty hip. I know these people. Just kidding. Uh, married to Ben Affleck, but apparently their relationship is broken up. They had like People magazine. They like have seven or eight copies of it all across the top in front of all of the magazine rack, which is where I go when I'm on the ferries because I want to, I want to see what's, what the headlines are on all of the culturally relevant magazines. And it was all about their broken relationship, Right? Hey, relationships are important in this world. Amen? Huge. It's one of the most important things in all of our lives. And yet, it's also true that we can see everywhere that they're broken. They're broken. And so, as Christians, it's supposed to be, for us, better. It's supposed to be. It really is. So what's Paul getting at? Well, it would appear from the context that the point is, uh, in chapter 5, the point is, the context is, producing fruit, right? And if you look at the facets of fruit described in chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, it's obvious that if all of them were active, if all of those facets were active in your life and in my life, right, and everyone else in the church, then two things would obviously be true. All of our relationships would be healthy, loving, and perfect, right? They would. This then would lead to a church that sees the Lord's blessings through more new birth, more new birth. Why? Because we would be sharing this love with the world. I love this quote that I saw this week by David Watson. Um, Somebody posted on Facebook, and it says this, Evangelism is the presentation of the claims of Christ in the power of the Spirit to a world in need by a church in love. How important is that for us to reflect that, right? Otherwise, we're just, guys, we're just doing church. We're just doing church instead of being the church in healthy and healthy relationships. He says, by a church in love. Wow. The King James Version, um, the venerable old King James Version, translates, interestingly, this word conceit as vainglory. It's a better and more accurate translation of the Greek. It is this. The better translation would be vainglorious. Literally means boastful, proud, but actually it means, better translated, even fuller out, empty of honor. In other words, it's a person who is boastful and proud, but really shouldn't be. (laughs) Boastful and proud, but really shouldn't be. And as we will see in verse 3, Paul says, we're all nothings, really. We think much of ourselves, but really, we, really, in the grand scheme of things, we're nothing. Well, just okay, hold on to that thought because we're going to get to some better news on that in a minute. But he, he wants us to understand that. So we should see conceit then as really as a deep insecurity, a perceived absence of honor and glory leading to a need for you and I to prove ourselves, our worth to others. That's what we should see as conceit, right? And this, of course, just leads to the problem that all of us have, which is comparison, Right? We're always comparing ourselves to other people. So in this one verse, Paul shows us something that 
really has astounded commentators uh, for centuries. It doesn't matter who you read on this. Uh, many actually have become quite angry with Paul for what he's written here, and they try to dismiss it a little bit and say, well, no, I don't think he's really saying that, but then you can't help it when you read it, and, and you, especially in the original languages, but also in the context of the book, it's pretty clear what he's getting at. And they know from the structure that he's basically saying this. When you and I fail to crucify the sinful nature and not walk by or in step with the Spirit, we will all become conceited. And here's how. Some of us will be vainly provocative, right? And some of us vainly jealous of others. So let's look at it this way. It's a little bit like you and I, you know, you've all heard the, these, these phrases, right? There's the superiority complex, right? And the inferiority complex. Yes, right? Sometimes people relate those two to being extroverts and introverts. And depending on which category you're in, you're in the better category than the other people, right? You look at the other people and go, oh, they're, yeah, they're not the nicest people because like, or they're not as bold and strong and confident as, but there's this comparison thing that gets going. Both are not healthy. Neither of these are healthy, but here's what's interesting and, and when we look at this. For example, if you suffer from inferiority complex, you know you might be saying you're going through, you know, you might be saying, well, it's because, listen, I'm going through a tough time, Thing, things aren't working out the way that, that, that I wanted them uh, or that you'd hoped. Uh, you, you've, you've had a failure, you know, and, and you've had some letdowns in your life and lost some money or a relationship and, and, and maybe just things have just become a bit of a mess. And so you feel, you know, the inferiority complex is taking over in your life. And when you feel this way... Let me ask you the question. There's going to be some pointed questions here that all of us have to deal with today. How do you generally feel about people who are not feeling the way you do about yourself? Right? On the opposite end of the spectrum, even your brothers and sisters in Christ, right? Do you feel like they're the ones who should hear Paul's message here today? <laughs> I don't mind again. How many times, like I used to hear preachers preaching and going, oh, I know who needs to hear that. Right? Not me, them, right? Well, yeah. that, that they're the ones who need the gospel. I mean, I mean, look at them. They've got it all, and they obviously, obviously they know they've got it all. Oh, I hate it when people act that way. Right? So we got this thing going on here with this superiority and inferiority complex. That's what he's talking about. Because some of those people are, listen, conceited about superiority. Now, when we look at that, we're like, well, that's obvious. People who are you know, so successful that they know it and they're proud of it and they're letting everybody know and they're showing off all their stuff and, you know, everything that they post on Instagram and Facebook is like glorious and fantastic and it's amazing, right? Obviously, they're conceited. But Paul and the Holy Spirit want you and I to see this. We're all being conceited when, when we think of others that way. We're all on a continuum, are we not? At any given time, I might be in a situation, depending on where I am on my continuum, where I might be looking down or back at people and saying, you know, hey, listen, I'm, I'm doing pretty good. <laughs> I mean, look at me. Look at this. Compared to them, right? But then, isn't it interesting? There's always, there's always someone over here, right? And you're looking up at them and going, I don't know. I don't know if I like them. The continuum is there. And so we all need the gospel. And again, this is, isn't this what Paul has been defending throughout this whole letter? He's not just defending the gospel because that's what you and I need to be saved. 
right? And have that certificate so that when we die, we get to go to heaven. It's supposed to change us today. It's supposed to transform us, every single one of us. So we all need the gospel. And so look at it this way. What is it that we, we're both really suffering from when we are being vain glory seekers? Well, again, it's what the false teachers have been teaching. We're seeking a works-based world, works-based salvation. This, this conceited provoca- superiority or inferiority complex drives us to believe that in this life, we've got to do more to stay up top or to get out of where we are and be like those people. We've got to work at it. It's a work-based salvation thinking. So when you think you're better than someone else because of something you have done, worked harder, smarter than others, you desire for more superiority. It swells up, making you feel proud. It's, it's hard to sustain, however, isn't it? It, it? it doesn't matter how you know, superior you think you've got, how successful you've become, there's a point at which, boy, I've got to keep... If I want to feel this way and be proud of what I've accomplished and, and still be superior to these other people, I've got to keep working hard because I've got to make more to keep paying for all this stuff that I bought. So there's this competitiveness that comes out. It's hard to sustain. And our competitive, sinful nature likes to help us with this, doesn't it? It makes you question if you're still great. When you feel inferior to someone else, on the other hand, you're devastated for the exact same reason. And this describes the nature, quite frankly, of the heart of every human being without the gospel. Do you get that? Everyone in this world is competing with one another. That's why Paul, again, back in verse 15, I think, of chapter 5, was talking about biting and devouring one another. We're competitive, trying to get a foot up. Take a message, please. Thank you. That's my wife's phone. I love that. <laughs> I, I, it's right there in her purse. It's awesome. Okay, we're going to keep going. So, though provoking and envying seem like exact opposites, they're actually both forms of conceit. It'll stop there. Thank you. I actually misquoted uh, last week. I said it was Tim Keller that said this, but it's actually C.S. Lewis, which, of course, Tim Keller quotes all the time, right? But it's that he pointed this out. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. And so self-adoration or lowest self-esteem are not marks of gospel humility. They're just as much a rejection of the gospel as pride and self-confidence are, right? So there's something about who we are in Christ that we're not believing And so we become conceited, whether superiority or inferiority complex. Let me give you a few examples of how this might, a little bit of a test, a couple of questions that you could ask yourself, right, to determine which side of the spectrum you're on, right, at any given time. And we're all all in this somehow, some way, a little bit anyway. Here's, Here's a couple of questions you might want to ask as a test. In any confrontation with another person, am I the one who completely loses it and gets all worked up? Or am I the one who goes silent and doesn't like the confrontation? Am I the kind of person who starts arguments or completely avoids them? (laughs) Do I lean towards judging groups of people I disagree with? Or do I feel weak and intimidated by certain groups of people and therefore don't even want to go there? When receiving criticism, do I look look for ways to find fault in the other person? Boy, I got to tell you, I like to consider myself a good debater, right? Like I do, because like I, I... 
I love it. I like being in a discussion. Not to win, but, well, okay, sometimes. But, it, but it's more about, you know, finding what, what the truth is and what right is. But I, I know that I've been guilty of this where someone's talking and, uh, yeah, I'm listening. But as you're talking, oh, I'm thinking of ways of killing that argument. <laughs> I just, okay, you're not like that. I'm a sinner. Um, but So when receiving criticism, do I look for ways to find fault in the other or do I get very defensive, discouraged, and give up completely? Do I ever think that another person could never accomplish what I have? Or do I believe that what they've accomplished, I could never do? Do you see the differences there? Listen, if we have those thoughts at any given time, we're struggling with this. And here's what's going to happen. If we're struggling with this, our relationships are going to suffer. That's the point of what Paul's getting at. And so again, the gospel, the good news Friends, is of course this. The gospel, which produces a whole new identity in you and I, a restored identity, I would suggest, the identities that we were created to originally have by God. We get a whole new self-image. We get a whole new self-image, which tells us that you and I are fully forgiven, that you are fully approved, accepted, and loved beyond any measure that you could ever hope for from any human being in this world by God by the one person who matters most. And the gospel is telling us that that should be what we rely on, that we should trust that and let that work out in every other relationship. And so here's the truth. You are truly unique to God. You don't have to prove, I don't have to prove my uniqueness to anyone else in this world. If they sense it, see it, learn of it because of a true loving relationship, awesome. But I don't have to seek it if I trust that I have my Heavenly Father's approval. So what's the result of a person of the Christian who truly gets this? A spirit-filled, a spirit-led life. That's the result. That, is that what we want? Well, that's what Paul's exhorting us to walk in. Walk by that, and you will not, remember? And you will do what you really want to do as a Christian. This is what you really want to do. And a new and better self-image that says, I can be bolder, hear this, than I ever thought now, and at the same time, truly humble. Isn't, see, here's the, that's the, the juxtaposition that most of us struggle with, right? Well, my inferiority complex or my introverted complex is my humility. Ah, careful, careful. Paul's saying it's actually your conceit if you think it makes you better than someone else. But in the gospel, in knowing that God, God loves you and that can never change and you're improved and accepted beyond any measure, now you can be bolder because your boldness is not you proving your superiority. It's you showing your love to this world. But at the same time, you can be humble, truly Truly humble. Why can you and I be humble? Well, because when we look at every other human being in the world who's acting superior or inferior, it doesn't matter what they're doing, we can look at them and say, you know what? I'm a sinner. They're a sinner. Jesus died for me. My sins are as egregious as theirs are. We're the same people. That's where my humility comes from. It is, again, the gospel. And so think about it, how this, listen, I've been thinking about this. How, how would this, if we all, all of us, absorb this as a church, as a body, how would it 
change every relationship you and I have. How would it do that? Well, that's precisely what Paul's going to show us in chapter 6, verses 1 to 5. He's going to show us a few things about that. And that's point number three, redeemed relationships. Look what he says in verse 1. Brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too are tempted. So listen, freed from our vain glory-seeking selves, we're now free to be focused on others. If comparison is not the deal anymore, if my superiority and my inferiority is not what I'm even thinking about or being dragged into, I can love others. I can spend my time doing that and, and be in their lives. In this case, Paul is speaking specifically of our family members who are caught in sin, transgressions. And so it's not about confronting as you read this verse, right? It's not about confronting someone and getting in their grill, being superior in the way that you approach this. But look at this. The language is those who are spiritual, spirit-led, walking by the Spirit. Those of you who are doing that and you know you're living that way, those who are walking by the Spirit, restore. I love that word. Isn't that a great word? Restore. So see, that that is the goal then. That's the goal of interjecting yourself lovingly into a person who's caught in a transgression and sin is to restore them. To what? Being spirit-led. To, to the self-image that they're supposed to live in, that they've got if they are in Christ. And then it says, in the spirit of gentleness, which is one of the facets of the fruit that we just read about in verses 22 and 23. The Greek word for restore means this set in place, right? It was actually a medical term in that day to, to be when you're speaking about like a dislocated shoulder, which is very painful, right? So people are walking around with a dislocated shoulder. That's painful. People are walking around with a transgression in their life and they're part of the body of Christ. It's painful. The word restore is to put it back in. And I'll tell you what, when, when, have you ever had a dislocated shoulder or a knee or anything that's dislocated? When they set it back in, it hurts like crazy. But then it feels great all of a sudden. It goes from extreme pain to, oh, thank you for that. That is totally awesome. And so obviously, it is impossible to help in this way if we think we are superior, right? It's impossible to be this kind of a person if we are feeling superior. We would tend to look down on them, be judgmental, happy that we're not like them and letting our self-righteousness shine, right? On the other hand... Even if we suffer from inferiority, we might still be thinking, well, at least I'm not that bad. At least I haven't fallen to that level. Or we might still feel inferior to them and fear that if we do interject ourselves, if we do go and criticize them or point out their sin to them, they may not want to talk to us anymore, which makes us feel even more inferior. So the last bit is, is, is awesome. He says, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Paul's gentle reminder here is, as you go about restoring your brothers and sisters in Christ, be careful not to become conceited all over again yourself in this process. Verse 2 is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. One of my favorite verses. It is, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. I would suggest that um, it's the Christian ministry, mission, in ten words. It's awesome. Bearing reminds us of the cross. 
Another's burdens being born is exactly what Jesus did on the cross, right? Not just another's, everyone's transgressions were born by Jesus on the cross. And in doing so, when Jesus did that, he fulfilled the whole law of God, right? He did it perfectly. And so for you and I, fully free men and women who are no longer under the law for our salvation, we get to look at this. We get to fulfill the law of Jesus Christ by loving one another. We get to do that. Jesus got to fulfill the law in a way that we can't, but we get to fulfill the law of Christ by loving one another. In verse 14 of chapter 5, we see an important parallel to this verse. I don't have it on screen, but if you look at it, you're going to see this really amazing parallel. It says there, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So when we look at 6.2, bearing one another's burdens is how we love our neighbors as ourselves. That's how we do it. Burdens is a very interesting word. It's a very interesting word. It's not the same as transgressions, although some people see it that way, but it's not exactly the same word. Um, It really literally means weight. it's It's a heavy weight. It's something that is weighing someone down. Every Christian brother and sister uh, here in this room today is bearing burdens. Maybe not as great a one as today. My sister has been bearing a burden uh, for my mother um, for a couple of years now, which is very heavy. And she's, uh, she's been bearing it, um, and she's struggling to bear it, and we all do. In fact, there are likely two reasons why we all have burdens. One is that we saw last week about the vine and pruning, right? Sometimes God allows burdens in our lives, weights in our lives, heavy things in our lives to prune us so that we'll realize once again that we cannot do this by ourselves. But then that's the other reason why burdens are given to brothers and sisters in Christ. So the rest of us will come alongside and help people bear their burdens. That's why they're given. They're good for us, but they're there as well. They need to be recognized. And in a functional family, in a community, which, which is where we live this out at the Rock Church, modeling healthy and functional family, this is where burdens get shared, or should be. So how would I know what your burden is if you're not in family, if you're not in community? If you're looking at relationships and saying, yeah, they're too hard. I think these community groups, these small groups that the church has is awesome, but you know what? I don't know. If I go there, people are going to have to get to know me, and I'm going to have to get to know them, and then they're going to know my stuff, and I'm going to know their... That's the point. We're actually pretty good at this at the Rock Church in many, many ways. I'll give you some examples. When uh, people have babies, <laughs> we bring meals for a few weeks, right? That's a burden. You've got a new baby, right? You've got a house. You've got everything going on. You've got a husband. Uh, for, the, for the ladies here, it's true. You do. And, and we help. We help bear a burden, which is very important at that time. And, and of course, for people who are six, just had babysitting for a couple who hasn't had a date night in six, seven, eight months might be a way to bear a burden for a family, right? Helping cut the grass or next summer shoveling the snow in my driveway would be really a burden that you could bear for me. What are you laughing at? It's true. But listen, it's practical. Fixing a roof, building a deck together at somebody's house. There's a lot of burdens out there, and, and, and that's what we're in family for, and that's actually how we end up loving one another. Last three verses, Paul concludes with this. For if anyone thinks he is something, 
when he or she is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. They're very intriguing verses. We don't have time to go too deeply into them, but they're very necessary. In in verse 3, Paul says, if you think you're all that, that you are superior, then you will never live out verse 2. You will never live out bearing one another's burdens and fulfilling the law of Christ, which is to love one another. You'll never accomplish it. Then in verses 4 and 5, he exhorts the person who seeks to bear their burdens, pardon me, seeks others to come and help bear their burdens and is always sharing their burdens, which is good. Well, he's reminding them that they need to return the favor. Some people and in the church, this can become a real problem because people just, people bristle at it. There are people who seem to always have needs, always have burdens, and, and it's like, well, we all chip in and we all help out with that, but then there's no reciprocation. I'm not thinking of anybody in particular, but that does happen. Let's just be honest about it, right? Um, that is why Paul actually uh, says this about load. The word load is very different than burden. The word load in the Greek literally refers to something as small as a tiny backpack. Backpack. It's almost like a fanny pack, right? It was still around. That's almost what he's referring to. And so basically what Paul is saying is, listen, snowflake, quit your complaining. Quit your complaining. The load that you are bearing, we all have to bury that load. We're all bearing loads. Amen? Anybody? We're all bearing loads. There are loads that all of us have to bear. And Paul's saying, you need to bear that load. You do. And at the same time, you need to bear others' burdens. So be looking for opportunities to do that. So imagine this in closing. Imagine, remember this. You are unique. You are made for relationship. You're made for community. Imagine what it would be like if you you no longer felt the need for comparison, neither superior nor inferior to anyone. But because you know just how unique you are, how accepted, approved, and loved you are every day by the only person in the world who matters, you know you can handle then whatever comes your way. And you also know this. If any burden ever gets too heavy and truly is a burden, you have a family who will bear that burden and load with you. Imagine what a church in love like that could do in a needy community like Squamish, and to the ends of the world. Pray with me, would you?